Welcome back to The Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind and your body and your movement and all the major components of your humanity. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but we're working on it. This conversation was with my good buddy, Paul Saladino, Dr. Paul Saladino. This is his second, maybe third time, third time on the podcast. The last one was cut kind of short, so I wanted to have him back for essentially like a round two because we're getting into some really rad anthropological tidbits that I found to be quite fascinating, and I wanted to continue that conversation around where the heck our ancestors come from why is it that our brains in a period of i believe it was about two million years jumped from something like 400 odd cc's to like 1500 odd cc's so three times the size in a fairly short period of time all things considered and why our brains are starting to shrink in the last 10 to 12,000 or so years pretty interesting. A lot of really good stuff, a lot of great information. I had a fantastic time with the good doctor once again. He is the author of The Carnivore Code. He is a medical doctor and uh, he's overall badass. We kind of veer away for the most part from most nutritional related conversations in the sense of dogmatically saying that anyone needs to eat any one way because I feel like we've already had that conversation. So now I'm more excited about the anthropological bits. Hello, thank you so much. There's a, a package being delivered to my front doorstep right now. I'll just leave that in there at my place in Santa Monica and uh, excited to share this conversation with you guys. Thank you all so much for reviews on iTunes. Thanks for uh, sharing this conversation with your friends. Thanks for doing you. And special news, we have created the Aligned Pants, something that I've been talking about for quite a while, uh, last year or so. People ask, where do you get your pants? Where are you always stretching in those jeans? So we created the perfect stretchy jean for y'all. So the Aligned Pant, you can see them on my Instagram at Aligned Podcast, and you see me flexing and doing, throwing legs up in different directions and such. Well, I am wearing what seems to be jeans. I'm wearing them right now, and they're red. They got a specifically patented cell phone pocket so you can do handstands or whatever, and your cell phone won't fall out. Or maybe you just want to wear a comfortable pair of pants that you can squat or stretch or whatever, and you could also wear them to uh, a dinner party or anything, and it won't be weird like you're wearing sweatpants or joggers. That is what the Align Pant is, and you can grab a pair at alignpodcast.com slash alignpant. A-L-I-G-N podcast.com slash align, A-L-I-G-N-P-A-N-T, and you will find yourself the Align Pants. We have a sweet discount for you as well. I think it's 15%, 10%, 15%, something like that, if you use the Align code. Align code, Align Pant, get after it, alignpodcast.com slash align pant. Here we go, back to the scheduled programming with my bro, Dr. Paul Sala. Dino. Pow. Thanks for making time to hang out and record podcasts yet again. Good to see you, brother. It's good to be up here. We've thanks done. for uh, thanks for doing a little body work on this frame. How are you feeling presently in your mental state? When you came in, you had a lot going on. How are you feeling? 
Certainly an improvement. Yeah. A little, little calmer. Yeah. Do you have much kind of like introspective practices of sorts when you're getting stressed out? I try to center on the breath. I try to do mindfulness, but it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it difficult? Is that a, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you, I promise. Is that a, some type of belief system that supports you in some way? Like the idea that it's difficult or is it actually difficult? I find it to be um, difficult to achieve results. Like it's not always efficacious. I can put effort into trying to control my mental state through breathing or mindfulness and um, it's difficult to feel that that actually changes my physiology and brings me to the place that I want to be. So where do you want to be progress somewhere more peaceful, somewhere more centered, somewhere less activated, (laughs) somewhere less of less of what you felt. Yeah. Why do you think you're so activated? Uh, Or historically you've been so activated. uh, Like I said, I think you, you rev the engine, it gets hot. Um, Why is the engine revving? That's, that's what I think about things, man. That's kind of what I do. Right, I think about things and try to connect the dots, and yeah. When did that originate? Thinking about things, yeah, to the point that it's like, from what you're describing, like the psychic engine is redlining, and you don't know how to how to control it. Why do you think that originated? Is there some sensation of like, oh, this has just always been the way that it is, or is there some time of like, oh, this is kind of there's been some gradual uptick at some point in my life. No, it's definitely increased in the last few years. I think I would say the last two years, kind of on the journey that I've been on. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to have gradually increased over that time and then come to some sort of a boiling point recently, like a yeah. certainly an apex or at least a, um, a critical point recently. But it's, yeah, I think it's just been increasing gradually. I don't remember being quite as bad. What was your childhood like? You said you weren't going to psychoanalyze me. I'm just curious. That's a, just because I'm asking about you being a kid doesn't mean any psychoanalyzations going on. Uh, my childhood was pretty good. What were your good. parents like? What was your relationship with your parents? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. My childhood was good, man. I, I grew up in suburbia, <laughs> suburban Virginia. Uh, I skateboarded. That was good. I was a mathlete. I was kind of a... You were a mathlete? Yeah, I was kind of a... Kind of a geek for a little while, hit hit puberty really late, and oh, focus on academics a lot. Right. And then uh, parents were always super supportive, never connected with either of them terribly deeply. But Why do you think you didn't? I think it was, I mean, it, my impression is that it's up to your parents whether you connect with them or not. Like, you're a child, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I think my mother was open to connection, but my dad was not open to connection. I think he has his own emotional issues. It's mm. he's kind of emotionally tied together. Is that something that you are open to talking about at all? Not like we're going to, you know, open up any old oh, yeah. seated wounds, but that's like stuff that you're, yeah. I mean, the only thing we've ever talked about before has been more around, you know, ancestral health yeah. things, but I never asked you about your dad before. So no, I don't no, even no. know if it's like appropriate. No, no, I can talk about it. I'll talk about anything. Yeah. So what was, what was relationship with him like then? It was like, what did it feel like? Uh, it was like a, you know, I remember feeling like you're a child, you're sort of a Martian, you're an astronaut, an explorer. 
And here's somebody that's gone before you in the journey and you want to know what their journey's been like, but mm-hmm. didn't get to hear what his journey was like. I don't really know what he thinks about life, what he thinks about meaning, well, his successes or his failures. He never really shared those things with me. It's, that's always been hard to kind of break through with my dad, but I always wanted to know huh? with my dad, like what he thought it was all about. What are we doing here? Why wasn't he so open to sharing? That's psychoanalyzing my dad. Well, you. Yeah. Just, you know, I wonder, have you thought about it? Well, yeah. I mean, I, he's given hints based on his childhood. Yeah. I think that we all carry. We're almost getting into an ancestry conversation. <laughs> We're going to wind back two million years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it around somehow. Fucking <laughs> <the> homo habilis. <laughs> just wait. Any word. Any, the next word out of my mouth is going to be Australopithecus. Any word now. It could be paranthropus. Just you wait. Yeah. I think his his mom, he said, was pretty strict and something about his family that he's never dealt with was challenging for him and shaped the way that he related to me and I think shaped the way that he related to my mom and that made for kind of a closed off father. Would you be able to like interview him or would he be like, fuck that? He wouldn't. Really? I don't think he would. Damn. I don't know. Why? He'd just say fuck that? Uh, I think he just would avoid it. Yeah. Interesting. I fear, I don't think it's ever done with humans, but I do think we calcify and we ossify. Whether it's physical positions or ideas or emotions that we're trying to avoid, patterns, you know this, that I think that if you do something over and over, which maybe is a great reason to always challenge your beliefs and never let your beliefs ossify, like always shake up your beliefs, always break your beliefs in half and see if you reform the same belief. Yeah. You know, like break the piggy bank and see if you remake it or, you know, like break the statue and make another one and see if it comes back in the same way. Um, challenging beliefs, hugely important, but I think that for my father, he's just, he's probably holding, it serves him in some way mm. and, and he's become so ossified that it's difficult for him to imagine breaking out of that constraining shell. I feel like, like ossification is a, is a, a very permanent word. And even within ossification, like the bone can break and can reheal in a different way. But you have like a vitality bank that allows the transformation of whatever the, the tenderness calcified structures that you've created. But if you have the vitality, then you can pour that energy and, and create change. But I think there's a certain perhaps like hill that you can start to go over where if you've you start running low in vitality, you're kind of venturing back into the ground and those ossifications are strong and thick and dense, then it's like maybe a bit harder. But I wonder what the potential opportunities to start to change those deep-seated mental emotional patterns are for the person that hasn't gone over that hill and they're not entering back into the ground. You know, to be able to actually like go in and hack their own perceptions and patterns and such. Any thoughts? Totally possible. Uh, I think it has to do with individual security and willingness and vulnerability and yeah. it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like anything new. First time you did jujitsu, socks, <laughs> you get hammered. Yeah. Not everybody wants that. Yeah. Because of the whole equation. What's your sort of what's the level to which you can handle discomfort at this point in your life? Where's yeah. your stress bank? You know, where's your, how's your allostatic load I mean, currently? Ultimately you could, I mean, it could go back to an ancestral conversation of saying perhaps at some point our indigenous ancestors, they weren't ossified in their ways, or perhaps at one point for some millennia span, 
there was some degree of ossification and then all of a sudden there was this big plastic time frame which you would refer back to like two million years ago and say like oh there was like there was something happened where all of a sudden they discovered these tools and they started eating meat and their brains started expanding and all of that but there was this moment of almost like severe plasticity that took place could that same analogy be drawn into a um, an ancestral perspective not just like this individual lifetime but could that ossification happen for generation and generation and then all of a sudden have some type of generation of plasticity i know i'm, I'm talking like i'm high but i'm not <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i think i think it like could stagnant generations it's almost felt like we degenerated during that time frame uh, yeah yeah i mean other times where it's a spike well we see that in, in recent human history which certainly i am no scholar of but you you can even look at the temperature on the on the earth and correlate that with like the renaissance apparently i heard like Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson talking about this, there's been these like mini warming periods in the last couple hundred years, last millennia. And, and during the warming periods, you see periods of Renaissance, you see periods of flourishing and uh, yeah, periods of flourishing of art. And then during the cooling periods, you see kind of the dark ages and, you know, just even a couple of degrees on the face of the earth, changing the environment. It causes people to get more sexual and more likely to commit crime as well. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, it's uh, the temperature fluctuating our nervous yeah. systems and our perceptions. Creativity, and so it, it's wow. and, it, and allows it's easy, it's easier to live on the earth, right? It, I mean, it's hard to live when it's cold. You're surviving. Yeah. Where do you go for beach vacation? You go to the tropics, man. You're gonna. It's easy living. Right. When the temperature's warm, humans have an easy time of living. Right. Temperature's cold. What are you gonna? You're not gonna create art or do creative things much when it's cold. I mean, I'm sure you do, but. That's just, just do a different things. You probably do different becomes, things. It becomes more introspection. Maybe it's almost like it's like a, a natural ebb and flow, like a cycle. It's like like you know people that do love seasons. You know, it's, there's something about going into winter, and it's like I clean my house and I reorganize and I read books and maybe I start writing my book and you know then I come out and it's like ready to you know pop off and now I can do crime and have sex and do all the things and like go out and not get as much stuff done. Yeah. Not that you need to do crime and have sex, but statistically, you're more likely to when it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) But there's like a natural cycle. I wonder if perhaps there's some type of natural generational cycle when the, you know, the, the, the sun does what it does and causes for, you know, perhaps a million years. There's like, I wonder if there's some value. We, we don't, you don't need to have a response to this. I'm just kind of talking as though I'm stoned, but I'm just kind of bullshitting. Of, you know, I mean, I, there are many warming periods yeah. and many cooling periods uh, in the last millions of years. And I think they do correlate with the ebb and flow of, of humanity. And then, you know, we, we might actually organically come back to something interesting now for the conversation. There appears to have been a, a massive event 12,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago, which really disrupted things on the face of the earth. And so... Not the agrarian age? That's the beginning of the Neolithic. Yeah. 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 It goes from kind of the the Paleolithic to the Neolithic, and and nobody really knows what happens there, but they call it the sort of younger dry-ass period. And every time I say that, people are like, dry-ass. But, you know, it's D-R-Y-A-S, and something happened with this, people think it was a meteor impact or coronal mass ejections, but there appears to have been mass extinction of approximately 75% of the species on the planet or more hmm. about 13,000 years ago. So there's a real change. Was that the Yucatan one? Uh, I don't think we know. Oh. We don't know where it happened or what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Massive flooding. It could have been. 
I mean, this is the kind of stuff that the Randall Carlson and, and Graham talk about that massive flooding throughout all the continents and mass extinctions and probably extinctions of the majority of humans yeah. and mass extinctions of the megafauna. Potentially there's lots of ideas about why the megafauna went extinct because we've all heard of dinosaurs, but, and, and woolly mammoth, but it's, it's really hard to wrap our heads around the fact that there were like hippopotami that were six times the size they are now. And, you know, lions and tigers and bears that were mutant and looked differently and saber tooth tigers and all kinds of crazy things that were big. There were a lot of megafauna on the planet. And I think even woolly mammoth were multiple times the size of an elephant, which is hard to imagine when you think about how big an elephant is. Wow. Yeah. So, but then they, they all went extinct and there was this major reduction in the size of animals and probably a major extinction in the number of animals. And that to me is one of the more compelling hypotheses around why our, our diets were forced to change 13,000 years ago because it looks like they were kind of steady for a long time and then something happened 13,000 years ago and we had a real change in what we were doing. So you're suggesting that that meteor impact was an impetus for farming? Potentially. We don't know it was a meteor. It could have been things like coronal mass ejections, solar flares. Wow. Yeah, people hypothesize different things. So Robert Schock has talked about... Why would that be? Why would that transition take place due to catastrophe? If all the, the animals you hunt go away. You need to start farming seeds. You need to start doing something. Yeah. Interesting. And it happened at different times across the globe. It didn't happen all at one time, but there was something that happened about 12,000 years ago with like mass changes in human, huh. in human, at least the way we interact with things on the face of the earth and mass extinctions of large animals. And then it seems like it occurred throughout the world at different places that humans started becoming more agrarian, more pastoralist. And even within the last 1,000 years, it's it's happened in places like, you know, North America and um, places like the Dixon Mounds, which are up in uh, Illinois, I believe, at the confluence of the, the, I think it's the Ohio and the Spoon Rivers. There's a valley there. And there's a really set interesting set of mounds that was explored by George Armalagos and like his graduate students. And they were able to tell based on the way people were buried in the mounds when they died. And so they, they, you know, if you look at 11, it's between 1100 and 900 years ago. So two to 300 year period, they excavated these eight or nine burial mounds. And you could see that in this time, um, there was the advent of agriculture in this population mm. at the Dixon Mounds. And with those people, they could date them based on where they were, which mounds they were buried and how they were buried. You saw a real change in the way that people looked and the skeletons and it's kind of the story which you can begin to tell of what happens when humans move away from hunting, which was originally this spark, I believe, and many people believe, that changed who we were as people. Yeah. What happens when we move away from that? And we don't really return to a pastoral lifestyle because we've never had that in the past. But when we espouse a new lifestyle that's based mostly on what Jared Diamond would call the cult of the seed. So if we go back further... The interesting spark that we talked about the last time was around 2 million years ago, but it actually began before that. So this is all kind of anthropologic reconstruction, but there were three species that were pretty fascinating. And one was Australopithecus, which is the species that's associated with Lucy. Lucy is this 4 million year old fossilized hominid. Yeah. And apparently in camp, they, they were big Beatles fans and they were just playing Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds all the time. And so they named this fossilized skeleton of this woman, Lucy. Mm. And Australopithecus appears to have split into at least two species. And one was uh, Homo erectus or Homo habilis, and the other was Paranthropus, which we never really hear about. But 
there's some pretty interesting data looking at these fossilized remains and, and the teeth of these skeletons between three and two and three million years ago. And looking at the stable isotopes, you can see that Australopithecus looks like it was a species that ate plants and animals, becoming more omnivorous than a primate ancestor. Primates eat small amounts of animal foods if they're presented to them, but the majority of their foods are leaves and roots and fruit. And then Australopithecus was eating more meat, and then there was a split, which often happens. And I think this this appears to happen frequently in evolution. There's some sort of a, a schism in the, the lineage, and and some species are are able to thrive in an environment, and other species do not. In this case, Paranthropus went extinct, and uh, Homo habilis lived on and became our direct lineage to Homo sapiens in in the following you know three million years. And so what was different between them was that Homo sapiens appears to have gone more meat and Paranthropus went more plants. Mm. Well, it's kind of a cool, um, kind of a cool diversion there, kind of a cool uh, schism to think about. Oh, we, we became adapted in a way. So when we think about the way that humans changed from primates to Australopithecus, we started having shrinking guts and brains that got gradually larger, but just we were just getting beginning to get bigger brains at the time. But even as our guts were shrinking, we started to become more and more adapted to eating animals. And so one hypothesis that you could generate, one story you could begin to tell is once we started eating animals, there was something about that that brought about some changes in us that allowed changes evolutionarily, physiologically for us to grow bigger brains, smaller guts, and that's a trade-off called the expensive tissue hypothesis. And then as we went back to plants, Paranthropus didn't do so well and went extinct. And then Homo habilis uh, went to many more animals and became more specialized as a hunter or at least an, a meat eater than Australopithecus. And that was where the lineage really progressed to. And that's where we see, as we talked about on the podcast we did recently, the the real increase in the size of the human brain yeah. or the hominid brain. So Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, many species in the intervening 2 million years. But the human brain about 2 million years ago really began to increase in size dramatically with the advent of things like Acheulean tools, these bifacial tools, um, hunting practices with evidence for mass graves of animals and uh, cut marks on bones and wounding of animals, all kinds of things like that. So it's a pretty interesting story. And so the human brain becomes very large as we became primarily meat eaters, I would suggest. And then the next chapter of the story is this sort of younger dry-ass period, this transition to the Neolithic, quote, revolution or de-evolution, whichever you think of it. And in the last 20-ish thousand years, our brains appear to have been shrinking. And we can tell based just on the cranial vault size of a skull. There's not air in there. And there's pretty consistent amount of cerebral spinal fluid and dural matter. So if the skull's smaller and the cranial vault size is smaller, the brain's shrinking, where it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Could there be any type of like mechanical efficiency component to that? That like, do we just need to keep on growing to be giants? Or is there something like the iPhone gets smaller with time? Like you don't really want your head to be 35 pounds. It's possible. It's totally possible. And there's always an energetic trade-off for humans. We don't think about this because we can go to the grocery store and the many of the diseases of civilization today are probably at least in part based on the fact that we have essentially unlimited food or many people have the access yeah. to unlimited food or excess amounts of calories. But that is an extremely recent left turn in human evolution. For the majority of our experience, it's been 
calories are the single greatest limiting factor for how we live our lives. And if, if we can't get enough calories, we're going to die ultimately. And if you grow a brain and you don't shrink something else that requires calories, you're just creating an animal that needs more calories, yep. which is problematic when you've been subsisting on the same amount of calories within a certain ecological niche. Yep. So that's the expensive tissue hypothesis that if you look at the colon, which is the large bowel of a primate, um, it's, it's voluminous. It's, it's huge. And it, especially the right, which is called the cecum, the right side of the large bowel. And that's where a lot of the fermentation happens for all the fiber that they eat. And it's actually made into short chain fatty acids, but humans don't do that. They shrink their colon and in shrinking the colon, many people believe that that allowed energetically the brain to grow or, you know, there's some sort of trade off there. So mm. it is possible that at some point we just evolution favored efficiency, but you wonder whether it would just plateau versus shrink. It's an interesting story. The other side of that story is... What was the size difference? It was, did it get up to like 1,600 cc? 1,550 to 1,600. It was, it was big? Where were we at now? 1,450. Okay. 1,400. Some people say 1,350, yeah. Okay, which isn't necessarily a bad or good thing. It just is. It's smaller. It's smaller, it's and, you, and we can make hypotheses whatever about it whether it's good or yeah. bad or yeah. whether it's related to changes in the human yeah. organism within the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's interesting because you can see correlates... When you think about what it takes to grow a big brain, people talk about animal-based nutrients. People talk about choline, which is a precursor for neurotransmitters, but also a precursor for all the cell membranes in our body. They talk about things like B12, which is clearly an animal-based nutrient. They talk about things like niacin, lots of B vitamins, which are really primarily found within animal foods that spark the sort of metabolic, the evolutionary, the neurological growth of the human brain, creatine, things like this. And so you could imagine a situation when if you withdraw those, maybe maybe, maybe it favors people who have smaller brains or shrinking brains. You, you don't really think that there's this sort of idea that you learn in biology in high school or college that a giraffe doesn't grow a long neck by like stretching its neck all the time. Right? Yeah. It grows a long neck evolutionarily. We think by having a need for that and the offspring that have longer neck are more favored in an environment and are more able to reproduce. This is the basic idea. So if the human brain is shrinking, there could be epigenetic changes that happen during a life and those are passed on to a child. That's one explanation. But there is also the possibility that there's something advantageous about having a smaller brain or the brain packed into a smaller space, like you said. Yeah. We do see that people who have lower levels of B12 have smaller brains. So there is a correlation there. It's difficult to draw a causal relationship immediately or directly, but in population studies done at Oxford, the lower the levels of B12 do correlate with smaller brain size. And in medicine, there are end-stage deficiencies of vitamin B12 which present as dementia yep. and many other neurologic conditions. And so we know that we need these nutrients that are exclusively represented in animal foods to grow a brain and to maintain a brain. There's also pretty interesting research that if you look at people who are predominantly vegetarian or vegan and you supplement them with creatine, which is this phosphate donating molecule found in meat, we can make a small amount of it as humans, but not enough to fulfill all our needs. Apparently, if you supplement these people with creatine at five grams a day, they do better than their previous baseline on card sorting tasks and memory tasks. And so again, a, a meat-based nutrient that is associated with improved intelligence when it's supplementing people who are 
apparently deficient. Yep. So there's a lot of things that kind of tie into the story and you start to think, could the human brain have been shrinking because of these environmental factors? Because if you, if you look at the rest of the story, if you look at the skeletons of the Dixon Mounds, if you look at basically indigenous cultures across the world, this transition from hunter-gatherers to agrarian societies, I mean, there's papers that documented in 19 or 20 societies across the world and they basically see the same thing throughout them. They see shortening of the humerus, which is the long bone in the, in the upper arm, uh, the femur, they see increased lesions associated with persistent infections and tuberculosis. They see increased fracture rates, more uh, porosity to the bone, and then special lesions called parotic hyperostosis, which is kind of hypertrophy, uh, spongiform changes in trabecular bone, which is the bone of the skull or the bone, the end bones of the body are trabecular. They're kind of fenestrated bone. They have, they're not like, if you look at a long bone in your arm or your femur, uh, there's there's a sort of long bone section and there's the knuckle joints on either end and the end parts are trabecular they're they're more porous and then the long bone sections are quite dense yep. and so you would see these spondiform changes in the trabecular the fenestrated bone in in the skull and that was happening with more regularity in in many of the cultures essentially 19 out of 20 cultures observed you would see all these changes happening so it's like something happened i don't yeah. i think a lot of people can kind of understand that going from nutrient rich animal foods which were certainly eaten nose to tail to grains might provide a more steady stream of calories but is nutrient deficient in many ways. Wanted to take a moment and thank a vital mineral referred to as magnesium. Magnesium is one of the only supplements that I will actually purchase with my own ducats. Ducat is another term for money that I've heard at one point in my life. And the reason that I will actually shell out my own money to purchase supplements. I get a buttload of supplements from various different companies, as you can imagine. And uh, for the most part, I wouldn't use most supplements. Uh, if they weren't free, there's a good chance I would probably not use them. Magnesium is one of the very few supplements that I will actually purchase. And so I teamed up with BioOptimizers, which is a highly trustworthy company that I've been working with for the last couple of years. And they have formulated their blend of magnesium, referred to as Mag Breakthrough. Their blend is special. I know that's what they say about all supplements, but they really are. One, they're just really well-sourced. Two, they include all seven different forms of magnesium. Oftentimes when you're getting magnesium, you're just getting one or two or three specific forms. Magnesium is complex and you derive benefits from all the various different forms of magnesium. The reason that magnesium matters as far as a supplement is because it is largely missing in modern day soil. So it is one of those supplements that is very helpful for function of your nervous system. It's helpful for muscular relaxation and repair, energy production. If you're having issues with sleep, anything of the sort, take some magnesium and uh, I'd recommend checking this stuff out. And you can also get a 10% discount if you go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K- T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com slash align podcast. 10% off. And if you don't love this product, then you get a full money back. So you got nothing to lose. You got everything to gain. Helpful to support that sleep. Helpful to support that muscle repair. 
and you get a 10% discount, magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. All right, here we go. Back to the program with Dr. Paul. Bow. It'd be interesting to go into the effect of not chewing the way that we once would have. You know, so all of the malocclusion, crooked teeth stuff, and you got like the, the idiocracy, receding chin, mouth breather guy. There's, um, did you ever read George Catlin's book, Close Your Mouth, Save Your Life? No, but I'm familiar with the concept. I think the book was, it was like 200 odd years ago that he, that he did it. I think he was a lawyer and then he was, he was like an artist and they left all that stuff and he went out and studied all these different tribes and wrote this book about the, the difference of just how much more healthier and robust they were specifically like their, their jawline and their teeth, similar to Weston A. Price finding a very similar thing. And he said he, with white people, he said that Native Americans called them, they said uh, their mouth was black because of the lies that come out of them. Mm. And so they're always breathing with their kind of their mouth hanging open and kind of going out with that. And then, getting into softer foods, you know, and softening up the grains and all that, as opposed to actually having to, for the example of like the meat, having to like pull and get in the gristle and all that. All that's a part of, of strengthening, not just specifically your jaw, but it's connected to neurological function. It's connected to hormonal function. It's connected to the rest of your, your body. You know, it's your chewing, your, your mouth, just like your brain, just like any part of your body isn't just an isolated specific organ inside of a vacuum. But It'd be interesting to talk about the effect of chewing, the difference of hunter-gatherer ancestors chewing on gristle versus us slurping down smoothies. Soylent. What's that been? Soylent. Yeah. Absolutely. That <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then Weston A. Price had some interesting observations, and I think these are pretty interesting, around the deficiency of fat-soluble vitamins mm. and the formation of the jaw and the formation of the enamel and the teeth and... I'm not a dentist, but I I suspect that a lot of tooth decay, a lot of jaw malformation is also related to fat-soluble vitamin deficiency. That is vitamins A, D, E, and K, which are predominantly, again, found in animal foods and more bioavailable in animal foods. And he, he observed that in people who were making similar to Catlin, I think, who are making the transition from indigenous to westernized, quote, cultures that, again, the teeth were malpositioned and the jaws were smaller. And yeah, it's scary stuff. Hmm. So why would that be? So says Weston Price. And I think that we don't know, understand the exact mechanism, but one of the things we do know is that nutrients are involved in patterning and development of parts of the body, yeah. right? So you think about a fetus developing, and if you if the mother has a folate deficiency, there's a high risk that the baby's going to have a neural tube, sort of a neural tube aperture or neural tube defects. Yeah. And you could imagine that perhaps if the mother's deficient in vitamin A, for instance, is that going to result in a malformed jaw or a hypo, you know, hyponathic jaw? Mm. And I definitely think that the fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies can lead to deficiencies or defects in the enamel in the teeth and make them more susceptible to cavities. Yeah. Not to mention your your tongue acts naturally as almost like a retainer for your jaw, for your upper palate. And so if you do have the tendency of keeping your mouth closed for a good chunk of your life and breathing through your, your nostrils as they're meant to be breathed through, your tongue acts as a natural retainer, kind of pushing that space out. So you have the muscles of your face that are pulling your, you know, your 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 cranium in, your skull in. And then you have the tongue pushing back out so it kind of creates this like equipoise balance but if that starts to 
slump and you kind of go into that slobby look, you just go into this collapse of form. And so then everything starts. Like I used to, growing up, I had, uh, what do they call those? The upper palate expanders? Yeah, I don't know what they're to, called. You put the key in, you screw it. And so oh, I had the yeah. full like, like bell curve, the whole thing. And um, yeah, all that is a, a product of... At, at least a part of the conversation is just uh, breathing malfunction. And I, I agree completely. You know, James Nestor has that new book about, about that too. Yep. Yeah, cool. And um, I will say that I think vitamin A deficiency is underdiagnosed. Right. I think that there is, there's a, a lot of people today that have a lot of vitamin deficiencies that are underdiagnosed, but I think vitamin A deficiency is one of the most prevalent because the vitamin A quote that is found in plant foods is beta carotene, which must be cleaved by an enzyme called BCMO into retinoic acid. Retinoic acid is essentially the type of real bioactive vitamin A that we use in our bodies that binds to the retinoic acid receptor in humans and has all these signaling functions. Now, the trick is that beta carotene is not equivalent to vitamin A, one-to-one, and there are some compelling studies which suggest that the ratio might be something like 19,000-to-one or something really astronomical that if you want to get enough bioactive retinoic acid from beta-carotene, you're going to have to eat 19,000 times as much. And so you look at a sweet potato, for instance, which is the most rich source of beta-carotene in the plant kingdom, in order to get the recommended daily allowance, which is really probably the lower end of what you'd want for retinoic acid equivalents in a human, you'd have to eat a pound of sweet potatoes every day. Mm. So if, if, if we accept those things as true or we follow that line of thinking, it's possible that the majority of the population is vitamin A deficient or people who are not eating liver daily or eating egg yolks daily may not be getting enough bioactive retinoic acid if we can't actually make it that well from plants. The thing that I found interesting is that some of the byproducts or some of the breakdown products of beta-carotene are not retinoic acid. They are other isomers of beta-carotene or beta-carotene breakdown isomers that might actually block the retinoic acid receptor. So that's interesting too, because if there are adducts or different products of beta-carotene that are produced that don't actually look at retinoic acid, they can occupy the same space and prevent retinoic acid signaling when it's supposed to. So... That's something I think is quite possible. It's interesting that in tandem as the human species went into slowing down physically, it also changed its diet into what, what could be at the, at the same time shrinking the brain. The similar thing happens when a person doesn't move enough. You know, so when you just go out and take a walk, it literally can add gray matter to your hippocampus and can improve your memory and creativity and start getting you thinking outside of the box. And you know, same thing like using your vision. If you're using more panoramic vision and you're looking out into the world, it literally changes the way you think and perceive time and perceive yourself and perceive others. You know, so it's 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 fascinating that in tan- it was like the, it's almost like the perfect storm of dumbing down humanity, in a sense, the agrarian age farming. Yeah, it was it was everything. <laughs> and you know, I think that for many of us in 2020 it seems overwhelming to think oh, I have to do my 10,000 steps a day. I need to go outside where I can look at the horizon. Yeah. I need to walk barefoot on the ground. I need to get sunlight. I need to eat these foods in this way. Who has time for all that? Yeah. But I don't think it's lost on you or I or 
That's, what, that's the whole reason I wrote the Align Method. It was the, the complete sole intention of the book is how you can seamlessly integrate that into your modern life. Yeah. It doesn't need to be something where all of a sudden you need to sell your house and you know go out and, and get a bow and arrow and live out in the woods in order to get your steps in. Like you just, through subtle little changes that you make to your home, your office, the way in which you travel, maybe while you're, you know, eating breakfast or looking at the, your computer, maybe you can do it on the ground or maybe like really subtle little, put yourself near a window more often, open the window all the way up. So you're getting that full spectrum of light and you're getting the phyton sides and you're breathing all the stuff, all the chemicals from the plants, like all that's, you're already doing this stuff. It just so happens that the mold that we exist in, it, it literally like retards humanity. It absolutely does. And I think of it as a, as a pervasive forgetting of those things that are a piece of who we are as humans and prevent us from being full humans today in 2020. And it, it's so interesting to think that those are just things that we did normally yeah, when we were walking on the ground and hunting animals. Yeah. Yeah. And we've really, I think, taken a step in the wrong direction here. Mm. And, and there's, there's a lot of amnesia to, to shed. And it seems like a burden because it, it's contrary to the way that our society is kind of asking us to live or making it easiest for us to live. But there is a possibility that written into who we are as humans is a different way of life that is really not, not escapable and is not something that we can just write over and, and adapt to very quickly. Maybe in thousands of generations, we'll become a different type of species that is more adapted to this um, modern life. But at least right now, we might find ourselves at a pretty uncomfortable crossroads as humans and have a decision to make. Do we preserve those things that make us human or do we just let them go away and, and suffer needlessly? So, Do you think there could be some type of higher intelligence to the whole thing that right now that we're looking at it from you know, the, the microscopic view, you know, where we're actually in the room watching the chaos. We're like, oh my God, this is terrible. But perhaps if you drew out to a 30,000 foot view, there's, there's some type of intelligence to what seems to be cataclysmic. I don't know. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I just thought you might have an idea. <laughs> I, I, I tend to think that we've, <laughs> I tend to think that, that we've, that we've gone off track. I tend to think of it as a forgetting and that we, what we need is a remembering. What is the track leading to? If there is a track. Good question. I, I think that who knows, <laughs> who knows, but I think that we have, we have, we should not ignore the fact that the way that we are living in 2020 is, is a significant stark departure from the way that humans have lived mm. for thousands hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And that might have consequences for who we are as humans at many profound levels. Yeah. Human to human interaction. I mean, this is rarity that, that humans get to do this as much, you know, interact with real humans and, yeah. you know, it's and look into each other's eyes. It's, it's digital. You know, it's, it's digital. Today. Yeah. And, and we were outside earlier in the sun and barefoot and that's, it's becoming more rare. And how many people actually get to smell plants and, and be in nature and experience the shift in their microbiome just by being in the natural world or, or see these horizons anymore or, you know, eat foods that are really in line with their genetics. Um, that's what I worry about. I don't know where the track was going, man. That's, that's perhaps the biggest question. Why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would at least suggest that our net happiness quotient is not going up. 
Do you think it could be possible? This is more stony shit. I apologize in advance. That we're some type of like custodian vehicle for technology to come into birth, and that is the higher intelligence, or or a part of some tract. Like what we are doing is we are, you know, thousands of little ants marching along and doing our building thing technology. Like, yeah, this was on Rogan recently. I'm sure. Who who was talking about this on Rogan? I'm trying to think. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I forget. There was an episode where they were talking about this. Um, I'll think of it. Yeah, that's a scary thought. <laughs> that's a terrifying thought because I don't want to be. I don't want to be part of the Matrix. I don't want to be an ant, right? Yeah. Well, how would you know? I don't want to be one of these ants that's just about making technology. And if I if I am, then I'm I'm not a good ant because I want to go the opposite direction. I keep thinking throughout all this. You know, I'm interested in the carnivore diet. I'm interested in animal-based diets. And I'm interested in where this is all going. And part of me just wants to go, quote, backwards. Like, I just want to simplify. Mm-hmm. I just want to spend more time hunting. I want to go to Tanzania next year and spend time with the Hadza. And Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Hopefully this winter, if it could work out, I don't know what the world will permit. Yeah, but I want to spend time with hunter-gatherer communities just to remember things I that, I, that, I, that I don't know that I can remember otherwise. I can pretend that I know what it's like to hunt in my polypropylene camouflage gear with my compound bow in a blind while I, you know, drive out there in my car and then stay in a cabin with, you know, a wood-burning stove in Texas in the winter. But uh, there's something different about doing the real thing. And, you know, I've had a couple of experiences in the wilderness that were extended and they just, they just put everything into perspective. They put kind of this virus in you that it's hard to shake. I agree. Yeah. You just think, oh, there's something about that that it's felt like a parasite of well-being. It needs to be fed. It felt a certain way. <laughs> yeah, it's a virus, man. It's just I, in my brain. Like yeah, I'm infected this, this vitality virus. In I'm infected there. with the wilderness it. virus and <laughs> you just remember like, oh, I remember what it was like. And it was a long time ago that I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, but I remember what it was like to like to sleep on the ground every night. Yeah. For 105 days and just to walk and be outside all the time and have a super simple existence and yeah i was having this conversation with um somebody yesterday atop there they have this beautiful place and they have like a little uh, rooftop area that oversees you know it's one of the highest points in austin so it oversees everything and one of the things we were reflecting on while we were up there is that naturally we have this appreciation for being atop high places like that and being able to look out mm. you know because it's it sends this indication like okay cool like we're safe we're that we're the highest we're the highest on the food chain here we're looking down on the prey as opposed to being looked down upon Heck yeah but as we were having that conversation certain ideas starting popping up because your ideas are formed by your environment uh but one of the things that like another kind of stony wacky idea is thinking of if you're that person that leaves you know in your case like going on, being on a trail for a long time or anything like that it's almost like society has consumed this highly addictive drug in the form of technology, tech, what would be like technophile, like obsession with technology and social media. And, you know, it's just always pulling and grabbing and vying for your attention. And it's literally, it's just an addictive drug. It's operating in the same systems as crack or heroin, anything like that. And so if you're a person that goes away for a time and comes back. Imagine that if it was some type of all-consuming drug that caused people to be depressed and anxious and maybe overweight and maybe all of these different malformations in their physiology transpired from the drug. And then the one person goes out for a hike in the woods for four months and comes back and the whole culture is addicted to the drug. You'd come back and be like, what's happened? (laughs) That's exactly the way I felt. 
I mean, I, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail 20 years ago, man. And that's exactly the way I felt when I got back. It was very jarring to walk down the aisle of a grocery store yeah, after, th- after three months on the Pacific Crest Trail. It yeah. was jarring. Fluorescent lights and yeah, sterile, just those alone. sterile aisles and processed food. and Perfect apples. Yeah, perfect everything's everything. square. Yeah. Square, straight. Well, there's enough food just... Um, what is it called? I think Imperfect Farm or something like that. There's various different companies that do this, but they sell the Imperfect Imperfect Produce, I think is one of the companies. I don't know. I'm not affiliated or whatever, but um, I used to get boxes from these these companies. I know it's not carnivore or whatever, but it's still there's there's enough imperfect food that's farmed that just gets thrown away because it doesn't match our idea of like what a good-looking zucchini looks like. Yeah. That's enough to feed the fucking world. If the world could live on zucchinis. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'm just saying there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of nutrients a, out there. Yeah, there I mean, clearly the world can live on zucchinis or vegetarians would all just be dead. We could debate that. No, <laughs> well, no, we can't. There's vegetarians that live their whole entire lives and they live, they live you know, they, they, they have achievements and they are athletic and, you know, all the things. I, I, I'm in more in alignment with, with you that um, meat and eating nose to tail and all that. I personally feel as though there's an immense amount of vitality in eating that way. Um, and, you, I mean, it's pretty inarguable that the, the, the concentration of nutrients is, like, you can't really compare it to, to most fruits and vegetables. But I can't argue that I know lots of vegans and vegetarians that are living really full lives and they're, they're intelligent and they can run further than me and faster than me and pick up heavier weights than I can. Um, but I mean, it's, that's like two, kind of two separate conversations. Ultimately, what I'm saying is we waste a lot of fucking food. <laughs> we do. We do. And we absolutely do. Um, but, you know, I think that the most, one of the, the striking thing, and you mentioned this earlier with like the horizons, was just being in a building with like straight shelves. It, yeah. it just felt, and square walls. Yeah, it changed the way you think. Yeah, square walls and sharp corners. That was very... That's, un- that's Roman. It was Before ve- that, pagan architecture was circles. It was very unusual. Yeah. And just the fluorescent, you can tell. I mean, it's, I think that that was one of the most striking things, like how foreign grocery stores are. And you didn't even realize that yeah. until I was in the wilderness. And yeah, you see a transition from nature. So yeah. like old, older architecture had much more natural uh, shapes to it. It's much, it was much more circular and yeah. spirals yeah. and things of the sort. And then there was kind of this like, at least an architectural transition into more mm. linearity and right angles and things that you would never see in nature. Mm. And then along with that, I think a lot of, we start to form ourselves, our, our thoughts and our opinions, our ideas of the world starts to become more box-like. And now we're inside of this box room and we have our box car. We have our, you know, Tony Robbins analogy, you go into your, you know, and then eventually you come back, you try to change your state with a, a circular or with a cylinder, you know, a beer can or whatever, you know, but outside there, it's all circles and spirals. And then inside here, we do our damnedest to keep ourselves inside of a box. Yeah. And inherently, I think there's a little bit of a conflict there. I agree. <laughs> I remembered the podcast. So I don't know if you heard this one, but it was Joe Rogan had Bob Lazar. Oh, on the okay. podcast. And Bob yeah. Lazar is a physicist who worked at Area S4 in New Mexico yeah. with alien spaceships. Uh, okay. Yeah. It was a mind-blowing podcast, whether you have interest in aliens or not. But Bob Lazar claims to have worked in, worked on anti-gravity, like an anti-gravity cool. machine, uh, anti-gravity unit. He claims to have seen 
these spacecraft and 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 he and Joe got into this interesting conversation about humans just being kind of this technology ant. Yeah. It's progressing technology. Uh, but Bob also did mention that the inside of the craft was seamless and there were no right angles anywhere. It was all smooth Whoa. and smooth and well, rounded. Think how, much, think how much friction that would create. You know, if you if you are if you're one with the medium that you're moving within, you probably go pretty quick. But if all of a sudden you start to change the whole shape and structure of that, I would. Im- I mean, I'm, I'm again talking out my ass again, but I'd imagine there'd be f- friction would 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 end up expressing itself. Well, this was actually <laughs> inside the craft. Yeah, he went inside the craft. He claims, and, yeah. and it was all smooth. There, there was nothing. Yeah, yeah. I slept in a teepee for like six months in Oregon, Bend, and when I was there. My dreams were the best they've ever been. Really, uh, my sleep was the best it's ever been. One, I'm like sleeping on the ground. I mean, I had I had a mattress actually, but but just being outside and all that. But a big part of it was the what felt to me. I can't explain it, but the geometry of looking up and seeing all the uh, trees, um, all of them going into that spiral and leading up, and then you have the little fire thing, and it's just like being within that circular spiraling geometry and just laying there and looking up. It like it almost felt as though it was like pulling your dreams up into space. <laughs> but all I could tell, I know that's some new age shit, but uh, somebody that's smarter about those those types of topics probably have some interesting information about it. All I know is when I was in that place, it felt really good. It, like just looking up, it almost felt like a massage for my brain. Whereas if I look up into like some yeah flat square hotel room with a blue light shining down, it feels like like an irritant. Like you're in a zoo? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we got to wrap this thing up. Let's wrap it up. I so greatly appreciate having this conversation. No, thanks for having me. It was so fun. Yeah. Um, you uh, you have your book. You have uh, your supplements. Uh-huh. You, what you necessarily call supplements. Uh, where should people go? Uh, Hello. We're finishing up. The uh, You can go to heartandsoil.co is probably the place to find everything. Heartandsoil.co. Podcasts are there. The videos are there. We got desiccated organ supplements there. If you need more nose-to-tail stuff in your life, all the good stuff's there. Cool. How fun. I appreciate you. Thanks, brother. Thank you for making time. Thanks for hanging out in the sun with me, talking about all things. All right. Over now. Thank you all so much for tuning into that. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, share it. You can share it and uh, on the Instagram, be likely place or wherever you do it. You tag a line podcast. That's me. You also tag Dr. Paul at Carnivore MD on the IG. A uh, really great conversation. I had a lovely time getting to connect with Dr. Paul again. This specific episode was right before his conversation with Joe Rogan. So he was a little nervy. And so this was like a little warm up before going on Mr. Rogan's podcast. So I hope you guys loved it. And if you guys are interested in learning a bit more what we have to offer in the Align Method, if you're having back pain, shoulder impingement, if you've been struggling with any type of chronic aches and pains in your body, if you're feeling maybe tired in your body, you'd like to feel a little bit more perky, a little bit more energy, a little bit more focus, we have a program built for you and it's called the Six Week Align Method Online Program. I can be found at alignpodcast.com. It is broken down into six simple weeks. It is a continuation of the Align Method book. It teaches you what you need to know to drive your body effectively. We never got this education in elementary school, high school, college for that matter, and it is 
pretty basic. Some of the things that you can learn around breathwork techniques, around utilizing your vision to calm your nervous system or activate your nervous system, make you more focused, basic mechanics on how to move well in your hips and your shoulders. These are simple fundamentals that everyone needs to have, but very few people have actually integrated in their lives. And that's what we break down for you in the Align Method six-week online program. Uh, that can be found at alignpodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy your week and I look forward to speaking into your ear canals next week. <laughs>